I'm Matt Mandel, and you're listening to Something to Consider, the podcast where I sit down and talk to today's most interesting thinkers, innovators, and leaders about their work. Today, I spoke with Bruce Friedrich, Executive Director of the Good Food Institute. Mr. Friedrich has had an impressive career as a leader in animal advocacy, working for organizations like PETA and Farm Sanctuary. More recently, he founded the Good Food Institute, an organization that promotes alternatives to conventional meat, like plant-based meat, think yummy veggie burgers, and clean meat, or meat produced through in vitro cultivation of animal cells instead of by slaughtering a living animal. In this conversation, we discuss the science behind clean meat, potential problems startups developing clean meat may face, and predictions for the future of meat. If all of that isn't tempting enough, I also got Mr. Friedrich to tell the story of the time he went shrieking in front of the Queen of England. Bruce Friedrich, thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. I think it's always interesting to ask vegans and vegetarians about what led them to make that massive change in their life. So can you talk a bit about uh, when you became vegan and why? I became vegan in 1987. Um, I read a book called Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. And in Diet for a Small Planet, uh, LePay makes a fairly basic argument. She just points out that other animals have to eat just like human beings do. And the vast majority of the calories that we feed to a chicken or a pig or a cow, the vast majority of what we feed to them, they expend simply existing. So uh, as just one example, chicken, chickens are the most efficient animals at turning crops into meat. And yet it takes nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out. It's literally 800% food waste based on the physiology of the chicken. Um, so that concept, to me, as a Roman Catholic, um, it just struck me as essentially stealing food out of the mouths of the global poor, um, and it convinced me to adopt a vegan diet um, all the way back in 1987. So you eventually went to Georgetown Law, and after you graduated, instead of taking a more conventional path and going on to a law firm or something, you decided to become an animal advocate. Can you talk a bit about not only seeing uh, you know, the claims of animals and the, the environment as a reason to change your personal behavior, but as a reason to change your entire career path? Yeah, I was running a homeless shelter and a soup kitchen in inner city Washington, D.C. for about six years. And I've been vegan for quite a while for the reasons that I just laid out. Um, and I read a book by a Catholic, I'm sorry, by an, an Anglican priest and a professor of theology at Oxford University, um, a guy, Reverend Dr. Andrew Lindsay. And he wrote this book called Christianity and the Rights of Animals. And he basically points out that other animals are made of flesh and blood and bone, just like human beings are. They have the same five physiological senses that we do, and they feel pain in the same way and to basically the same degree. And he suggests that what's being done to them basically mocks God that they were designed. I mean, it's really, it's, it's a very, uh, he puts it in a faith context, but it's really for anybody um, who wants to lead an ethical life. So he points out that other species um, were designed with wants and needs and desires um, and the way they're treated on modern farms, the way they're treated in slaughterhouses, um, they're not allowed to do anything that's natural to them. Uh, they're mutilated in ways that are extraordinarily painful. Um, would warrant felony cruelty to animals charges were dogs or cats similarly abused. And this argument just really, uh, it really spoke to me. Um, and it caused me to decide to change my career path. Um, I had been 
running a homeless shelter in a soup kitchen. Um, and I ended up deciding uh, to dedicate myself to animal protection. So you just mentioned a couple of times uh, how important your faith is to you, and especially in the context of your beliefs about animals. Um, I'm not sure if you watched the HBO show Silicon Valley, but they recently had an episode about a gay programmer who gets outed as a Christian and all the repercussions he faces for that in the tech world. Uh, can you talk a bit about the experience of being a Christian in the tech world and the animal rights world? Um, yeah, I saw, I saw that episode. Um, yeah, that was that was very, very funny. It was like uh, the fact that he was gay was totally fine, but right. the fact that he was Christian, uh, you know, made him persona non grata, and he was very, very upset to have been outed. That was hilarious. Um, I, I haven't found that. Um, I mean, it's certainly the case that um, I think in the tech world um, and also in the animal protect protection world, um, it is probably disproportionately secular relative to Christian. Um, but uh, I'm not sure exactly why that is. Um, people of faith are very interested in leading lives that are focused on applying the golden rule. Um, it's not much of a stretch to say to, say to somebody, you know, have you seen a modern factory farm? Have you seen a modern slaughterhouse? Do you really think that aligns with God's intention for God's creatures? Uh, very few people will say yes in answer to that question. Um, so I think I think you're right that um, it's uh, it's a little peculiar relative to what's kind of the norm. Um, but um, I think generally people who care about animal protection, at least, um, are happy to have all the allies they can find. That's good to hear. It's always hard to tell with uh, you know, shows like Silicon Valley what's completely hyperbole and where there's a kernel of truth. There's, I think there's a kernel of truth, um, especially in the tech world. I think, you know, it's sort of hyper-rational right. um, in Silicon Valley. But um, animal protection is, uh, is fairly philosophical. And I think in the same way, way that uh, Silicon Valley is, is hyper-rational and animal protection seems to be um, hyper-philosophical, both those sorts of, you know, most people who are hyper-rational and most, pe most people who are deeply philosophical uh, probably are going to skew secular and maybe even in some cases anti-religion. So I think there's a grain of truth to that. Um, but uh, I think it I think it hits on something, the, the degree to which faith is anomalous, uh, but not, you know, not faith is scorned. Turning back to your career in animal advocacy, can you talk a bit about what you did from kind of like the start of your career until a couple years ago when you founded GFI? Um, yeah, so uh, for 13 years, I worked at People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, most recently as vice president for campaigns. Um, then I took sort of a two-year sabbatical, and I went and taught through Teach for America in inner city Baltimore. Um, and then I came to work at a group called Farm Sanctuary, running their policy department. So um, at PETA, I was hired into the campaigns department and rose um, up to become vice president of campaigns um, and then teaching through Teach for America in inner city Baltimore. Um, that's pretty obvious. I was teacher of the year for my school, my oh, second wow. year. It definitely worked for me. <laughs> uh, and then at Farm Sanctuary, I was running their policy department. So that means uh, lobbying for legislation, mostly at the state level. Um, so state level bans on various forms of confinement agriculture. Uh, but also uh, for a federal egg bill um, against state laws that would ban undercover investigations. Um, and then also a fair bit of regulatory work, mostly focused on the Humane Slaughter Act and the Poultry Products Inspection Act. Um, and then a bit of both offensive and defensive litigation work. So um, offensive litigation had to do with you know suing. 
um, and defensive litigation work had to do with protecting state laws that we had passed um, from litigation. When I was doing research uh, for this interview, I came across a picture of a Bruce Friedrich. I don't. I want to leave you some plausible <laughs> deniability here. Um, and he was naked in the back of a cop car in the UK. Uh, so I guess first, was that you? And second, can you tell a bit about the story of how you ended up naked in a cop car? Uh, yes, that was me. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I was, they, they had a, they had like the police jacket over me, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you couldn't see anything in the and picture. I sh- and I had shoes on, so. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, in 2001, uh, George W. Bush was coming for lunch. Uh, he had his daughters with him. They were um, having lunch with the Queen at Buckingham Palace. Um, and there were um, protesters um, out. George Bush was was not particularly popular in England. I was acting director of PETA Europe at the time. So I was over there for um, a five-month stint um, running PETA's European operations. And our one of our European staff um, thought it would be a good idea for a couple of us um, to streak the president's motorcade with GoVeg.com painted on our chests and our backs. Um, So the person who was supposed to streak alongside me was caught. uh, So I was the sole streaker. um, And I was able to get right up to right up to the Bush motorcade um, and ended up on my mom saw it on CNN. This was back in the day. CNN headline news actually every 30 years, every 30 minutes ran the same story. So uh, for more than 24 hours, every 30 minutes, um, I was on CNN headline news. So on the CBS evening news um, in the United States, it was on, it dominated the media in the UK and around Europe. Um, and PETA's servers crashed over and over and over. Wow. Uh, so, you know, it'd be on BBC and thousands and thousands of people would go to goveg.com and the servers would crash. And then the next morning it was in all of the major newspapers. So the servers kept crashing. Um, so in terms of drawing drawing attention... Uh, to vegetarianism, it worked. Uh, it worked swimmingly well. So you spent a lot of time, as we were just talking about, trying to draw attention to the cause, and then actually actively advocating for animal rights in the courts um, and campaigning. And then a few years ago, you said you took a sabbatical, and then you changed your mindset from uh, focusing on the advocacy component to taking a more, I guess, like business-centered approach to animal rights. Can you explain um, why you want to make the Good Food Institute, and I guess what GFI does? Yeah. So the central brainstorm of GFI is a recognition that the vast majority of people are not going to change their diets on the basis of ethical considerations. So um, literally for decades, we have been telling people about the environmental harm of industrial animal agriculture. We've been telling people about cruelty to animals. We've been telling them about health implications. And in 2017, there was a higher per capita meat consumption in the United States than any previous year in U.S. Wow. history. Uh, and it is go- meat consumption is going up globally. And it's really, especially in developing economies, it's skyrocketing. So all of this education, I mean, I, I suppose it's possible that meat consumption would have been even higher uh, without all of the education, but we're definitely not um, making a dent. And in fact, things are going in the opposite of the direction uh, that I and many others have been focused on deriving them uh, for me for more than 20 years and for other people for, I mean, a Diet for a Small Planet, the book that turned me vegan, um, is now more than 50 years old. And it's sold millions of copies. Um, and people just are not changing their diets by and large on the basis of these ethical considerations. So the brainstorm of the Good Food Institute, we looked at 
what uh, Ethan Brown and Pat Brown and Josh Tetrick and some of these entrepreneurs were doing, uh, which is to focus on basically beating the products of industrial animal agriculture at their own game. So literally 100% of people, when they're thinking about what they're going to eat, um, they consider the taste, they consider the price, and they may not be overtly thinking about convenience, but if the food's not there, they're not going to eat it. Those are, that's the trifecta. That's the thing that actually um, can change the game. So people like Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat and Pat Brown from Impossible Foods and Josh Tetrick from Hampton Creek, now called Just, um, these guys basically are making products that are designed to biomimic meat, but from plants. So the thing is that meat is made of lipids, it's made of, made of amino acids, minerals, water, everything in meat, we can also create from plants. And then for people who just don't want plant-based meat, we also have what's called clean meat, which is meat, real meat grown directly from cells. So um, it's sometimes referred to as lab-grown meat or in vitro meat or cultured meat. The uh, term of art, um, according to most people in the industry, is clean meat, which is basically a nod to clean energy. Clean energy is energy that's better for the environment. Clean meat is meat that's better for the environment. It uses 99% less land, 90% less water, causes 95% less climate change. Um, so the focus of GFI is basically to take ethics off the table and to focus on science and technology, innovation, policy, corporate engagement, and to do it all internationally with a focus not on the ethical um, objections to industrial animal agriculture, but on creating products that compete with industrial animal agriculture on the basis of the factors that consumers act. You know, what do people like about meat? Let's biomimic that with plants. Let's grow that directly from cells. So part of the purpose of GFI, as you were just saying, is to bolster this whole industry. And I think GFI is in kind of like an interesting position where you're working with entrepreneurs who are largely there for social reasons in addition to the business reasons. But the reason that you start a clean meat company is because you probably care about the environment or animals. So on the one hand, you have all these entrepreneurs who want to solve a problem, which is, you know, the killing of billions of animals a year or environmental degradation. On the other hand, they're also business people who've raised millions of dollars and have strong incentives to keep, you know, their IP um, private from each other, to like keep marketing strategies pri proprietary. How does GFI navigate those kind of like competing motivations within the industry? Um, I mean, it hasn't been very difficult so far. So, I mean, it, it's, um, you definitely hit on something that is true, um, but this is a nascent enough industry that to the degree that there is going to be conflict, um, it hasn't really arisen yet. Um, so it's worth noting that two and a half years ago, there were, there were no clean meat companies. Um, now there are more than 15 clean meat companies. And GFI operates, we operate primarily as sort of a think tank for these industries, but we do attempt to work with the companies. We pull them all together for quarterly meetings to discuss policy, um, and then different separate quarterly meetings to discuss science and technology. Um, what is scientific work? that all of these companies would profit from, essentially. And um, yeah, it's going, uh, it's going very, very well so far. Um, and although you're right that there are IP considerations for these individual companies, the fact that all of the people who are founding these companies are mission aligned, um, largely they're focused on environment and food security. They're focused on the environment and how do we feed 9.7 billion people by 2050. Um, to some degree, a few of the companies, I think, are also animal motivated. Uh, but because the motivation of the founders is altruistic, um, 
even though, of course, they are starting for-profit companies and their investors um, are generally not as altruistic. Um, the fact that their motivation is altruistic has so far um, helped to, to stop any significant conflicts. So companies like Tyson and Cargill, which are currently some of the largest meat companies in the world, are investing in this space. Is their perspective that this is just a way to kind of like stay competitive? Or do you think that there's an actual like ideological shift going on uh, within those kinds of companies? Um, you know, it's interesting to chat with people in those companies. Uh, there's de- I mean, I think it's I think it's in large part what I just said. So um, the companies like nobody in a meat company is excited about external costs. You know, they're, they're in meat despite external costs, whether those costs are environmental um, or sustainability or animal protection. Um, nobody's excited about modern farms. Nobody's excited about modern slaughterhouses. Nobody likes the climate impact of these products. Um, so I think meat companies in particular are looking for ways to bolster their sustainability bona fides in particular. Um, and certainly the individual people, um, they're human beings. And like all, you know, pretty much everybody would like to be doing something that's better for the environment, that doesn't harm animals, that doesn't contribute to global poverty. Um, so um, the primary motivation has to be bottom line at the end of the day. You know, they're, they're global corporations, uh, but they're also human beings who are making the decisions. So um, I think it's very much both and. I think you're right that no one wants to be doing something that's harmful to the world and people like making money. And so if you can, you know, help the world and make a lot of money through clean meat and plant-based meat, then these seem like technologies that I should be really excited about. I want to dig in a little bit more and offer up a few objections, questions, um, some more shallow, others maybe a bit deeper and more penetrating in order to figure out exactly how excited I should be about these technologies. So first off, is there any risk that the like nutritional makeup of clean meat is worse than conventional meat? Like, what, might we lose any nutrients making the switch? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's uh, it's it's basically standard tissue engineering. So um, I, I suppose I mean there, there's a debate among clean meat scientists and entrepreneurs about whether we should simply create meat that is identical. Um, in every way other than bacterial load um, or heavy metal load if you're talking about fish. So I don't think they're going to put mercury right. um, into the fish. So I suppose if it turns out uh, that mercury in fish is good for you um, against scientific consensus, you know, that that would be a worry. Uh, but uh, but obviously, you know, mercury is is horrible for you. Um, similarly, similarly, bacterial contamination is horrible for you. Um, but there are there are people in the clean in clean meat entrepreneurship and clean meat science um, who say, look, HCAs um, are carcinogenic. Let's create meat without HCAs. Or there are people who say, you know, the saturated fat causes um, all of these problems or certain aspects of the animal protein cause these problems. Um, so if we move toward actually creating clean meat and tweaking it, um, I suppose we should be pretty sure that we're actually isolating whatever the um, health harms are in meat. At the Good Food Institute, we're pretty adamantly on the side of let's just make the exact same thing. Um, if somebody wants something that isn't meat, they can eat a veggie burger or they can eat be beans and rice. This isn't for them. Um, this is for people who want meat 
um, but let's make it without any sort of antibiotic contamination, without the bacterial load, if it's clean meat fish, without the mercury. Um, but otherwise, let's make exactly the same thing. Um, so that's our uh, that's our view, but we're not one of these clean meat companies. Right. So at the end of the day, we don't really get a vote. Um, but uh, I think most clean meat companies are basically on board, although um, a few of them are, are looking at, uh, you know, basically maximizing the good fats, minimizing the bad fats and a few other things. If they do that and it turns out they're wrong, um, you know, then the answer to your question could be yes. Another maybe like more surface level problem for clean meat is the question of will people actually eat it? Talking to friends who don't have much background in this and don't really care about the environment uh, explicitly or like animal rights, they seem to think that this is something that they would uh, you know, be happy to eat. Do you have any um, insight into whether there will be like a psychological, visceral distaste for something that's like, quote unquote, synthetic? Um, I mean, it's not synthetic, of course, it's real meat. Um, so far, the polling is all really positive. Um, and the polling is positive, even in a bit of a vacuum. So you just explain to somebody what it is um, and ask whether they would like to eat it. And better than two thirds of people say yes. Um, it certainly seems to me that, I mean, right now people are eating meat despite how it's produced. This was accentuated for me a couple of months ago when a researcher at Oklahoma State University um, did a poll in which he asked people what they think of factory farms and slaughterhouses. And 47% of people said that they would ban slaughterhouses. So 98% of people eat meat, and yet 47% of people said they would ban slaughterhouses. Um, you know, I, that can't really be reconciled, yeah. obviously. And, you know, they, they probably have, a, you know, sort of a, a light view, uh, light favoritism toward banning slaughterhouses. But at the end of the day, well, in any event, what that says, though, is that people are eating meat despite how it's produced, not because of it's how it's produced. And, you know, everybody, if you just describe what's happening on a modern farm or what's happening in a slaughterhouse, people are going to be, oh, I don't want to you know, pay for that. Um, so if you have two products and one of them is produced the way that things are produced now, which is obviously extraordinarily unnatural, um, and the other one is produced in essentially what looks like a meat brewery, a clean antiseptic facility, they both turn out the same product, except one of the products is less expensive um, and doesn't have the bacterial load. I think everybody goes with the less expensive product that doesn't have the bacterial load. Right. We should say that, that it's not less expensive yet. That's like a hypothetical future state in which uh, clean meat is cost competitive with conventional meat. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and, and I mean, I think if we don't get there, uh, then the whole experiment is not particularly useful. Sure. Um, there may be a, you know, a small percentage of people um, who will eat clean meat that is more expensive than industrial animal meat, but it's going to be a small percentage. And that the percentage of people who eat regeneratively farmed grass fed, um, that's like a fifth of 1% of the market or something like that. Um, I think clean, you know, which is still, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so I think we could do clean meat to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars if it's more expensive. Uh, but to actually be cut, you know, to actually replace meat, it's going to have to get to cost competitiveness. And since it is a much more efficient process, um, probably at least three times as efficient as chicken um, and eight to 10 times as efficient as beef, um, because it's so much more efficient, it should be less expensive as it scales up. Um, assuming that's true, I don't think people are going to have qualms about eating it. And so one more question about perception branding. You were saying that the correct term of art or like the term of art used in the industry is clean meat. And when I have conversations with friends who like 
you know, keep up with the news and are well-read and tech-interested, but not necessarily focused on this specific industry, I usually get a funny look when I say clean meat, and then I have to clarify uh, that I mean lab-grown meat or cultured meat. How does GFI or other players in the industry work on changing the words that people use? Well, we've done pretty well so far with uh, with clean meat. Um, we recently did some analysis um, of media hits for clean meat versus cultured meat and lab-grown meat, um, and then also Google searches. And, and clean meat is well past um, both cultured meat and lab-grown meat for Google searches and for media mentions. Um, so, I mean, yeah, m- most people probably can't tell you um, who the vice president is. Um, so, and you know, and obviously Mike Pence uh, gets a lot more ink than clean meat. But I will tell you, um, clean meat does significantly better in, in consumer research polls. Um, most people also don't know cultured. I, I don't think if you, uh, I don't think if you clarify clean meat with cultured meat, you're going to get any more um, awareness. And what we found at the Institute of Food Technology Conference a couple of years ago is that cultured has a meaning in food. Um, so at least with, with food industry experts, they were really confused mm. when we said cultured meat. Um, they thought it was like pickled or canned or fermented or something. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you have to explain clean meat. But if you're starting from the word clean, you can talk about why you're calling it clean, sort of like clean energy. Probably most people originally didn't know that clean energy meant uh, some form of renewable energy and you had to explain it. Uh, so clean meat, we're sort of in the early days uh, of where clean energy was in the early days. But as more and more people talk about it, um, it will become more and more familiar to people. That makes sense. Um, so now I want to move towards a somewhat more potent objection, I think, which is uh, an article I came across doing research for this. Um, Pat Brown, who's the CEO of Impossible Foods, which makes a plant-based meat uh, meat product, said in, a, in an interview when asked, why don't you do clean meat? Why do you focus on plant-based meat? He said, quote, the simple answer is because that is one of the stupidest ideas ever expressed. First of all, it's not true you can do a better job that way because then you buy into at best the same limitations that a cow has. And it's economically completely unscalable. If we could grow tissues that were a meaningful replica of animal tissues at an affordable price from some cells, it would revolutionize medicine. I thought it was really interesting to see that a biochemist who's an expert in this field and intimately involved in trying to solve uh, you know, the environmental problems associated with animal agriculture had such a strong position against clean meat. Um, do you have a sense of what people on the other side of the uh, other side of this issue make of his views? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been on multiple panels with Pat uh, discussing this issue specifically, um, and he feels so strongly <clears throat> in favor of plant-based meat as the solution to the problem of industrial animal meat um, that I think he conflates his support for plant-based meat um, and sort of that, that bleeds over into his technological assessment of the viability of clean mm. meat. I, I would just say that when GFI started, um, we were completely agnostic on whether we would do plant-based meat and clean meat or just do plant-based meat. And when I hired our first couple of scientists, what I said to them is we don't have to support clean meat. At that time, we were calling it cultured meat. But uh, what I said is we don't have to support it. If we think it's not economically viable, um, we can go all in on plant-based meat and just ignore clean meat altogether, which we, we would be happy to do um, if we weren't so enthusiastically supportive about the viability of clean meat. And the more our scientists dive in, the more optimistic they become 
about the likelihood that clean meat will be able to reach price parity and then be even less expensive than industrial animal meat. And I would point out that the, the two sort of pioneers of the movement, Uma Valetti from Memphis Meats and Mark Post from uh, Mosa Meat, these two guys are medical doctors. Uh, Uma trained at the Mayo Clinic and was president of both the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association for the Twin Cities and was a professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota. Mark Post was a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School um, and is both a, an MD, PhD, um, like Pat Brown, incidentally. Uh, these two guys could be doing literally, well, not literally, these two guys could be doing a wide variety of incredibly lucrative um, things that are also very good for the world. As medical doctors, they could be doing a tremendous amount of good in the world and doing very well for themselves and their families. Um, and they are both all in on clean meat, uh, not because it represents you know, some economic opportunity for them, but because they see it as a viable way of doing a tremendous amount of good um, in both cases uh, for the environment by replacing industrial animal products with clean meat. So the people who have the most understanding of the technology um, are believe that it is viable. And the last thing I will say on this is one of our scientists, Dr. Liz Specht, um, she met, went and met with the Bill and Melinda Gates Investment Group, with DFJ, uh, with a bunch of people on the uh, Series A cap table for Memphis Meats. And one of the key points of that meeting was to chat with them about, you know, nobody's going to want to invest in this if it's, you know, some sort of passion project for somebody. Um, all of the people who are investing are investing because on the basis of doing a scientific analysis and seeing whether they think it makes a good, good uh, investment sense for them to invest, they ended up being convinced that it does make good investment sense for them to invest because on the basis of the science they're looking at, uh, they think it is completely viable that clean meat would reach cost competitiveness uh, with industrial animal meat. And of course, that, that also includes Tyson Foods and Cargill and PHW Group, which is the largest chicken company in Germany, um, multiple governments. So um, I, think, uh, I think all of the, uh, the sort of disinterested science points toward viability. Digging into that a little bit more, have there been any like uh, milestones or predictions that uh, clean meat scientists or researchers have made and they can point to as like, Here's something that we said we'd be able to do, and we were able to do it. Um, I mean, multiple uh, multiple companies are yet now using serum-free media to grow cells. There hasn't been a, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of prediction um, along those lines. So, um, although there haven't been a tremendous amount of predictions that have been met, um, other than I mean, so so companies are certainly setting benchmarks. So, like Memphis Meats had multiple benchmarks as a part of their seed round that they had to meet in order to raise their Series A. Um, similarly, other investors um, at angel level will have benchmarks that they have to reach in order to raise more money. And everybody um, is either, has either, nobody has failed in meeting any of their benchmarks so far. Uh, but there hasn't been a lot of sort of public predicting um, that has been successful or that has failed um, so far. And there, there is the, the gauntlet has sort of been thrown down by Josh Tetrick at Just who has said that they will have a, a commercial product uh, by the end of this year. So that, that's a fairly, fairly public pronouncement. Wow. And, you know, within, within six months, we'll know, we'll know whether they succeeded or not. Commercial product, meaning I can go to the deli aisle at my local grocery store and pick up a just chicken slice? No, 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 no. Um, yeah, that would, that would be bold. But uh, no, just, just that they will, have, they will have sold clean meat okay. um, commercially by the end of the year. So there, there are a wide variety of ways that they could do that. But 
they, they definitely have not said that, uh, you know, clean meat's going to be widely available in your local grocery store. I don't come from a science background and I've never done science research. Um, but it's always struck me as kind of odd that researchers, you know, will say that they'll be able to do X thing in Y number of years or Y months. Because it seems to me that in order to be able to know when you'll get something done, you'll, you'd have to know all the steps that go into getting that thing done. But if you know all the steps that go into getting something done, then wouldn't you just do those things now and then be able to do it? It seems like either you know exactly what you need to do, in which case you've already solved your problem and you can make a prediction about when you'll be able to get it done, or uh, you don't know everything that you need to do. There are like unknown unknowns. And so you can't really make a prediction about when you'll uh, be able to get whatever you're working on done. Can you unpack a bit for the non-scientific folk what exactly goes into the mental process of making these kinds of predictions? Something like Josh Tedrick's prediction, I mean, he could do that tomorrow, technically. Like they are, they are producing um, enough clean meat that if they wanted to make a meal and sell it, um, they could do that tomorrow. There are probably 10 companies uh, that, that would be able to do that tomorrow if they wanted to. Um, the, the sort of more common um, process involves scientists figuring out, you know, here are the four critical technology um, elements. We need immortalized cells. We need an edible scaffold. Uh, we need a media that is serum-free and reasonably priced, because that's the number one um, input into the technology. Um, and we need to figure out how we scale up bioreactors. Um, and then across those four critical technology elements, you sit down and you figure out um, what your path to market is and what you need to do across those four critical technology uh, elements to get to market. Um, and it's basically, you know, scientists uh, working with um, people on the business team to figure out what the costs are going to be, um, how much money they need, what the personnel needs are going to be. Um, and what the benchmarks are going to be to sort of, you know, how do you spend your series A and then your series B and then your series C uh, getting to commercialization. Can we maybe like take a step back for a second? And could you explain in a little more detail using the words you just did, like scaffolds and bioreactors, uh, what exactly the process of making clean meat is like? Uh, yes. So, you t I mean, it, it's uh, it's super simple, really. I mean, it, this was one of the things that we found to be somewhat revelatory at GFI when we first started looking at plant-based meat and clean meat. Uh, we had an assumption that clean meat, because it, you know, is something that almost nobody has ever tasted yet um, and obviously doesn't exist commercially in any form. Uh, we thought the science of clean meat was going to be a lot harder uh, than the science of plant based meat and a lot more complex. And we figured we'd be you know, constantly learning. Uh, that turned out very much not to be true. Uh, the four critical technology elements that we identified at the beginning are unchanged um, and at least so far, we haven't found any things that we didn't know we didn't know. Um, on plant-based meat, we find things we didn't know we didn't know um, on almost a monthly basis. And there are like huge revelations in plant-based meat uh, that we didn't know about two years ago that radically changed the way we, we think about that technology. So that's that's been kind of interesting. Um, explaining clean meat is a lot easier because it's not identical. Um, if you're going to have something where you need to do 3D printing technology or something like a chicken breast, that's going to be different than um, a chicken nugget. But for the most part, the four critical technology elements have to do with your cells um, and your cell line and hopefully having an immortalized cell line so that you don't need um, multiple animal donors. So you have one animal donor, you take a sesame seed um, size biopsy from the animal, which can be completely painless, um, and that supplies your chicken or turkey or 
pork or whatever meat um, in perpetuity. Um, so you've got your cell line, it's an immortalized cell line. Then you need to figure out what you feed the cell line to cause the cells to multiply and grow. Um, at lab scale, that's gonna be a very um, expensive um, mixture of nutrients, which you're gonna have to figure out a way to use food grade nutrients um, and bring that cost way down. Um, so that's the media, that's the second critical technology element, what do you feed the cells? The third critical technology element is what do the cells grow on? Um, so what does your scaffold look like? And do you have a scaffold that biodegrades, so it's not in the final meat product? Um, or do you have a scaffold that is edible um, and is from foods that are already in the food supply, ideally? Um, if you don't have, if it's not biodegradable and it's not foods that are already in the food supply, um, you're gonna have regulatory hurdles uh, that I don't think any of the co companies that are currently operating um, are interested in, in having to deal with. So um, either bi biodegradable um, or currently uh, consumed foods. Um, and then the third step is the bioreactor. So you need to get from um, essentially a Petri dish uh, to a 20,000 liter bioreactor. And as you scale up um, tissue culture, um, it's not perfectly clear what it looks like to go from you know, a five liter bioreactor to a 20,000 liter bioreactor. Wow. So there are some, there are some technological hurdles um, and that's gonna be an essential element to, to bringing the cost down. Um, and nobody's done that yet. Uh, so that's, uh, that's definitely going to be um, an important hurdle. And it's something that all of the companies will have to contend with. So a lot of the research going forward is on how to scale up these technological processes. Uh, yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the vast majority of it, uh, well, all of it is, it has to do with those four questions and clean meat, like that's right. all of it. That's the whole ballgame. Um, and then a lot of it has to do with, yeah, how do we, how do we scale up and bring costs down? Um, exactly. So now turning towards the future, what do you think each of these industries looks like in the next, you know, 10 years and then maybe like 30 years? Um, I guess like relative to each other, plant-based meat and clean meat and then relative to the conventional meat protein industry at large? Um, I, I mean, it, it, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Um, so like right now, plant-based meat is a quarter of 1% of the meat industry. So the meat industry is somewhere on the order of $210 billion a year in the United States. Um, plant-based meat is about $600 million a year, so it's tiny, uh, but it is definitely growing against um, industrial animal meat. Uh, we're seeing the same thing happening with the plant-based milks. Um, although industrial animal milk is going down, plant-based milk is skyrocketing. Um, our expectation is that we'll see something similar with plant-based meat. Um, and it'll probably take um, at least a few years to even get to 1% from a quarter of 1% where we are now. Uh, but I think the scale-up is going to be pretty swift as the technologies get better um, and as the price comes down with scale up. So um, I will not be surprised if in 10 years, um, plant-based and clean meat combined are somewhere between five and 10% um, of the meat market. Um, and I will also not be surprised if in 30 years, I mean, uh, Richard Branson said in 30 years, 100% of meat will be plant-based or clean meat. Um, I think that's certainly wow. possible. Um, and then, so someone listening, you know, was persuaded by all this and decided that they wanted to get involved and helped get get to that future in 30 years where 100% of meat is clean, clean or plant-based. What's the best way to do that? I mean, I guess, I guess it depends on what your aptitude is and, and where you are in your career. Um, so for people who are 
early in their career, we strongly suggest, um, well, I mean, if you're sort of pre-career, strongly suggest looking at science. Um, so food science or crop sciences or plant biology or tissue engineering or biochemical engineering um, or anything having to do with manufacturing. Um, these are all jobs that uh, will be very much in, I mean, they're, they're very much in demand across the economy. Uh, but if you're interested in getting involved in plant-based meat or clean meat, these are all um, roles where there is a significant talent gap, gap right now. Um, and your skills are absolutely necessary. Uh, for people who are beyond the point at which they can sort of choose a scientific career path, um, there's a need for most people who are needed in any sort of um, industry, there's gonna be a need for you in plant-based meat and clean meat. Um, one really phenomenal career path that I think um, is under uh, considered oftentimes um, is getting a job in the food industry. So go to work at Cargill or Tyson, or if, in your, or if you're in Canada, Maple Leaf um, or Nestle or Pepsi or um, ADM or one of these sort of large global food conglomerates um, and learn the ropes. Um, you may have the capacity if you rise up quickly uh, to help to steer these companies toward more investments in plant-based meat and clean meat, both internal R&D um, or uh, equity investments in some of these startups. Um, but even if that doesn't happen for you, um, at GFI, we do not see what we're doing as disruption. We see it as transformation. We have been deeply heartened by the enthusiasm from companies like Cargill um, and Tyson and Purdue and others for these technologies. Um, and I think uh, for people to go and work at some of these companies, I mean, you can either go work for one of the startups, uh, but if you go work for one of the really major food companies, um, learn how the food industry works, learn how these companies work, um, and then you can bring that skill set back um, when you go and either found one of these uh, startups um, or go to work for one of these startups. Getting involved in GFI is also a pretty good idea. So if you if you check us out at gfi.org online, uh, we would love to to brainstorm with you and plug you in. That's awesome. Before I let you go, I wanted to bother you for a book recommendation. Is there any book that you think that everyone just has to read? Um. Wow, there are a lot of books that I think everybody should read. I mean, there, there are time management books that I think are pretty fantastic, um, like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and Getting Things Done. Um, in this area, there's a phenomenal book called Clean Meat uh, by a former HSUS vice president named Paul Shapiro. The website for that book is just cleanmeat.com. Um, then GFI has a website at cleanmeat.org. Um, I'm actually, this has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about right now, but I'm reading Michael Pollan's book at the moment, um, How to Change Your Mind, uh, and, and finding it riveting. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Uh, that's the story of the omnivore's dilemma guy just doing a bunch of psychedelic drugs, right? Uh, yeah, it starts out as an exploration. So like three years ago, he wrote a piece uh, for The New Yorker um, about research at Johns Hopkins University with people who have stage four cancer um, and are terrified of dying. Um, and at Johns Hopkins, they uh, give the, the patients psilocybin um, and their success rate with, with helping people to basically come to equanimity um, about their impending death um, is really just quite remarkable. And so in How to Change Your Mind, uh, Pollan dives into sort of the early work in the 50s and 60s um, and all of the sort of remarkable early successes with this sort of, um, with this sort of um, psychological research um, that was just buried. Uh, once the U.S. government 
uh, made these these various substances class one. Um, and the whole thing is just uh, it's rivetingly interesting. Not not relevant to what we're talking about, but it's the the book that's sort of on my mind yeah, at no, the moment. Good reads a good read. Indeed. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much again for taking the time. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thanks, Matt. I enjoyed it, too. And I, I do hope people will check out uh, GFI.org. And if you are presently um, in college, we have a fellowship program um, and we would love to, to tell you all about it.